Hi, you're listening to WRBH Radio 88.3 FM. This is your host of New Orleans by Mouth, Chef Amy Sins. And today I have my new friend calling into the studio, uh, Mr. Evan McCommon of Mahaffey Farms. And for my listeners out there, I had a chance to go and explore what I am now calling the 318 and my new like part-time area code because I had so much fun up there. Uh, and I met Evan and thought that he would be the perfect person for y'all to hear all about. So thanks for joining me today, Evan. Oh, great. That's a great introduction. Thank you. <laughs> well, so Evan, tell my listeners out there, what is Mahaffey Farms? And like how, you know, what is going on up in North Louisiana? Yeah. So um, our farm is a little small family farm that I kind of reinvigorated about four or five years ago. I think we started in 2012 selling vegetables at the local farmer's market in Shreveport. Um, but one of our missions, I suppose, is that you know we're trying to regenerate the land and um, improve the community food system up here. Um, you know, there's the, the term food desert is used a lot to talk about Shreveport, and there weren't a lot of options for local produce, much less, you know, uh, something striving to be organic or sustainable. And um, I've been managing this land for, since I've been about 18 years old, and we've been involved in the timber industry. And the timber industry up here has taken, some, taken a dive since probably starting in 2008 or so, maybe 2006, and uh, I was looking to diversify and do something with the land and something that I was passionate about working outside and building something. Um, so it's evolved over the past four to five years to where now we're selling grass-fed beef, uh, pasture-raised chicken, pasture-raised pork. Um, we're using heritage breeds. We're involved in uh, restoration agriculture, regenerative agriculture, we do uh, farm-to-table events, uh, just every aspect of, of um, getting back to a, a connected agrarian community. And I love that, Evan, and I, I think, oh, okay, so here's a guy that grew up on a timber farm. Mm-hmm. At what point, what, was there like a moment in your life where you went, okay, now it's time for the animals and this is my calling in life. And like, did you have an aha moment or did it just happen? Yeah, I get that question a lot and I couldn't really put my finger on it. And then I, it came to me that I remembered it. It was a, kind of a vivid memory of my grandfather had died in 2009 and we were remodeling his home. We were probably going to rent it out at that time. And now we live in it. But um, I was nailing up a trim board and I noticed a tag on this board is just a little one by four piece of lumber and it said product of Sweden. And as I was reading that label, a log truck was driving behind me on Mahaffey road, hauling out logs from our land that we were harvesting that week. So we had these loggers, you know, we were selling timber and I was nailing a board to my grandfather's house. That was a product of Sweden. And that was my moment where I was like, this is something is very wrong here. And um, that kind of led me into wanting to get involved in this concept of sustainability, or if you want to call it that. It's more of an endeavor. You know, I don't think we're going to get there in my lifetime, but I think it's something to work towards. And um, I feel like we've lost our, our um, 
sense of local pride and local uh, production when things like this are happening. And, and you know, that's, it's so true because I think if we all stopped for a few minutes, we would have those aha moments when we reach for the tomato in the grocery store or we realize that you know, the corn or the, you know, whatever it is that we're about to put on our dinner table or we're about to put in our homes, I think we could have probably a hundred aha moments a day. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and people don't often think of timber as agriculture, but it is an agricultural business. It's just the, the time span is, you know, it's not a yearly harvest. It's a 10 to a 15 to 30 year harvest, but it, it is an agricultural enterprise. And we've made the same mistakes in timber that we've made in monocultures of corn and soy and, um, you know, the 3000 mile food circle or food destination situation um, where almost all of our vegetables come from Mexico or California. And um, we've lost, not only have we lost our local connection with all that, but we've also lost some some culture and heritage that went with it and uh, biodiversity. I mean, I was just in awe whenever I was walking through the farm at you know, it's it's kind of like, you know, I'm as a country girl living in the city, the country calls to you just like the city yep. calls to you. And whenever you're back in your element, you're like, oh, it just feels right. And that was kind mm-hmm. of the feeling I got at the farm was, oh, my gosh, this just feels right. And what was so mm-hmm. interesting to me was this whole idea. I had not it was not a term I was familiar with, which was restoration agriculture. And you probably use mm-hmm. that term you know, 10 times while we were talking. And I think that's mm-hmm. something that our listeners need to know what that, that means. Yeah. Uh, Restoration Agriculture is coined by um, Mark Shepard. He uh, wrote a book called Restoration Agriculture, and we had him out, uh, I think it was a couple of years ago, to do a workshop here. Um, and it's about raising our food with using perennial crops in a biodiverse ecosystem as a way to maybe um, shorten it up. And another term I use a lot is, is regenerative agriculture. And regenerative is a word that we like better than sustainable because, uh, paraphrasing uh, Darren Doherty, who um, is a, what do you call a luminary in the regenerative agricultural movement, is um, sustainable is not good enough. And it's not good enough because we don't want to stay where we are to sustain. We want to invigorate or regenerate and make things better. And what the history of agriculture in the United States has actually degraded the soil. We've mined the minerals and moved them away, and uh, we've lost or- organic matter. We've lost biodiversity. And so restoring and regenerating is a concept of putting those things back and using the same systems that created them. Um, this, this idea of our topsoil that was actually created over you know, millennia of herbivores eating perennial plants and grasses and that cycle of herds coming in, uh, you know, disturbing and then the plants growing back and and putting more carbon into the soil. It built our topsoil over, you know, tens of thousands of years, if not millions. And we've been harvesting that without putting it back and without any regard for it. So, uh, you know, it's, it's revealing its ugly 
head in the, you know, in the dead zone and the, and the Gulf and down in New Orleans where you are, yeah. um, the, all the, the watershed of the entire Midwest is going down to Mississippi and all that topsoil has been moving away. And that fertility, what built America is being lost. And, um, it's through the extractive process where we actually have the, the science and the technology now to, to, to uh, redesign our agricultural model, production models. And we, where we lose some efficiency, we gain effectiveness. And I think being effective in managing your land is more about maintaining the uh, or building your soil and the biodiversity as well as producing food. So it's a different focus. It's a different mindset of, um, of being effective versus being efficient. And for my listeners out there, you know, I got to see some of this process firsthand and uh, the way that, you know, I saw it as a person who knew nothing about, you know, regenerative or sustainable agriculture. I know that I do my best to be a good, you know, citizen, you know, (laughs) but I don't, you know, I don't know the details. And while I was out at Mahaffey Farms, you know, I got to meet the pigs and I saw that the pigs were rooting in a certain area. And then I saw areas that were ready to be planted. And then I saw the chickens running around. So is this, mm-hmm. you know, if you could like talk a little bit, I, I was just fascinated about how you were moving the animals as you were moving the crops. And it all just made sense because I don't think, you know, we as, you know, backyard gardeners throw another bag of topsoil maybe you get a couple spoonfuls of osmocote maybe you're doing you know all these things that you're getting from your local garden center but there's a real way to do it yeah and and i mean that can be there can be challenges if you were going to try to use these sort of systems in the city but something as simple as a little chicken tractor um, that you know, they even sell in a tractor supply, and um, you can order them online. But it looks where you'd have a small flock of chickens that would clear an area, and then you move your chicken tractor and then plant your garden there is a very simple concept. But it's um, it's a way of kind of visualizing what we do um, on a larger scale. Um, some of the stuff that's near the homes or the homestead area of the farm is is what we would call our intensive operation. And then as you get further away, it's ex- more ex extensive operation where we're mostly just using cattle and perennial grasses. Uh, the, you know, uh, the, the pigs were using them to um, reinvigorate and fertilize and turn over the soil in areas that were cut over timber. And, um, you know, we're augmenting them with uh, feed that is, uh, we have certified organic feed, we have non-GMO feed, and then we have non-medicated conventional feed um, where, you know, pigs are herbivores and they can't survive on grass alone and vegetation alone. So we do have to give them a, a ration of feed, but we're trying to make choices that affect acres of land beyond our own. So when you choose to, to feed your animals a certified organic feed, you're actually uh, influencing the marketplace for farms that manage grain production in an organic way. So it's a it's a holistic viewpoint of of not just your land, but the the system that we eat from. And it, it's, you know, I, I had a conversation with someone actually while I was up there in Shreveport that, you know, you know, one little idea can 
sparker evolution and mm -hmm. every individual in the whole world counts because even the smallest tasks you do like a chicken tractor or mm -hmm. you know composting you're still impacting the way people think the way people eat the runoff that is goes into the area so it's not like every little step still is important right yeah yeah and i mean it, and you know it's daunting to think about changing the way you eat completely it's i would say it's impossible for us to do like cold turkey um and it really what people can do to just make a to make a difference is to maybe once a week try to source your meal locally you know it's like hey you know we're gonna have family dinner night so for this family dinner night let's let's try to buy you know maybe at least one item it could be i think there's like a a, a five dollar a week number that actually makes a huge difference um i forget how that phrase goes but yeah if you spent like an extra few dollars on local production or local food or you know if you can find regenerative farms or um, people that are practicing agriculture this way it is more expensive our products are more expensive and it's because they cost more to produce and our scale is small and it's impossible for us to have our prices down at these industrial you know supermarket levels but if more people would make a small purchase say once a week just as a start then it would allow more farmers like us to enter the market and that's the hardest part of this whole thing is the price objection um it's probably the thing i deal with the most um socially <laughs> yes yeah and you know i i think we're all starting to understand that you know it it takes money to have good quality and uh also sometimes you have to sacrifice personally to be able to support, you know, the bigger cause in some ways. So, you know, a couple extra dollars there can make a difference in the lives of farmers, in the future of our agriculture, and in the way that people think in the area. So, you know, I totally feel the price objection. And hopefully, uh, you know, as a community, we're moving past that. One mm -hmm. of the things that I, you know, I really liked about the property um, I have a, I like, I love chickens. Um, you know uh -huh. that. And so do all my uh -huh. listeners, I love my little chicken babies, but I grew up on a cattle farm and mm -hmm. to see the, you know, the cows that you have, but I was fascinated because there was a story about why you chose those particular cows for your farm. And I think that would be something interesting for our listeners to hear. Okay. Um, we raise. A, our, the cattle that we chose or the breeds that we chose to, to work with are called uh, Spanish Colonial, um, the Texas Longhorn, uh, Corriente, and then the Piney Woods um, are the three main breeds that we have. Um, when you know there were no cattle indigenous to North America, and in the I guess it was the 1400s when the Spanish first came into Florida and the Caribbean, I think the first records we have of cattle coming were into Florida, and they were a um, Spanish breed that basically was let out and they went, you know, feral per se, and they, they adapted and, and kind of ranged throughout the South and then varying breeds. There's the Florida cracker, piney woods, Texas longhorns, and then down in New Mexico, you get the Corriente. And, um, since we were transitioning from a, a timber farm to a, um, you know, a, what I guess we would call it a, um, Savannah, 
where we'd have um, you know pastures and trees together, or silvo pasture is another term uh, in this in this in this style. I knew I'd be starting with really poor quality grasses, poor quality um, forage, and I would need an animal that was rangy and uh, you know tough and adaptable, you know parasite resistant um, and able to thrive in that environment. And they, these breeds have a history of that uh, that. Uh, toughness that we were looking for, or, or resilience is a better word. And uh, at first, I was looking at goats, but it turns out, you know, I think goats are wonderful animals, and they 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 make a great, you know, uh, good meat. And it, but it, unfortunately, in, in the American South, it's a very small amount of consumption. So yes. we had to go with something, you know, that that would be easy to sell in a direct market situation, which was beef. And so these, you know, our 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 cattle are um, unique in our choice for that reason. As time progresses, I could see where our, bra- our breed would adapt maybe to a, a, a more of a grass-finishing style or a grass-finishing breed like the um, – we, we have actually a South Pole bull that we're crossing with these piney woods. Um, the South Pole was developed in Alabama for heat tolerance and grass-finishing and um, parasite resistance. So we're trying to come up with – resilient breeds and resilient her- our herd would most likely end up being adapted to our land and um it's just going to take years to get there but it's um it's proven to be very interesting i mean you know one of the complaints you get about grass-fed beef is it's gamey and tough and dry and um we haven't found that to be true um i our, our customers are receiving our, our product very well, and they're not. We're satisfied with it. It isn't obviously choice or prime beef, um, but it is a very delicious beef. I, I would say that our flavor is better uh, than a lot of this factory farmed beef that you get or feedlot beef. Um, I've gotten to where I, I just don't like steaks that come from these overly fattened corn-fed animals. I've really I think there's a subtle, but uh, I shouldn't say so. It's a it's a very noticeable uh, improved flavor, in our opinion, and a lot of our customers. You know, I I think there is something to say that you know, happy cows, yeah. happy chickens. You know, they're yeah. they're chill. They're hanging. Mm-hmm. You know, they're yeah. There there's something about the environment in which the animal lives that I think mm-hmm. it affects the the overall cycle, and uh, mm-hmm. we it, I think we tend to be very I, I don't want to say closed minded. We're just familiar with what we know and having the opportunity yeah. to to explore and taste and know that there are cows that only eat grass and there are different breeds and what the cow eats and how the cow lives and the whole environment is going to adjust the, the flavor of what mm-hmm. the end product is. Yeah. And I think there's an authenticity to it with that we've lost as a culture in America where we've, we've adapted this idea, especially with the USDA and the beef program that it's that the best beef is what we're all going to grow, and the best is determined to has, has somehow been determined to be uh, black Angus, uh, you know, fed corn, and that's a, a cattle breed that's from the United Kingdom. The climate there, the 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 ecosystem of the of the UK, is not anything like the American South, and 
I think it's more interesting that we would have breeds and our own kind of cattle culture and even flavor profile that was actually authentic to our area and our, and our heritage or history, if you want to call it that. Um, I I mean, technically we should be eating Buffalo, but, (laughs) but but that's a little bit harder for us to manage because they're not a domesticated livestock species, even though there are people raising Buffalo bison and it's becoming a, and actually it is a growing industry that we're, that we really appreciate that now happening, but it's just not practical for where we are in our, in our particular farm. Um, you know, we're, we're very close to subdivisions and the fencing would have to be, you know, it's just a little tougher to, to get into the bison business. It could make your life super exciting, Evan. <laughs> <laughs> but you add some bison and some goats and you'll be running around like a crazy person all the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah I feel like as diners, you know, we, huh. we're starting to realize that, um, you know, we want to buy our produce locally. And as a result, only certain things grow in certain areas at certain times of the year. And it yeah. seems like now we're finally starting to realize the same way with, you know, the animals that are being raised. And so it's kind of the next phase in the educa- education process of yeah. the end yeah. diner. Yeah. I was going to make a point before I forget about that is that, you know, there actually is a beef season. <laughs> Good to <laughs> you know. know. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, people don't think about that, but you know, we have like we have an actual tomato season, even though we're used to eating tomatoes year round. And, and but if you wait for the season, that's when things are best. And, and the beef season for for our region is, you know, the uh, middle of spring when you or the end of spring when you've had time for your steers that you were finishing for beef to uh, take advantage of the lush grass that comes up. And so you have to time things to where you're finishing your beef during the spring lush and or the the fall lush. So in the fall, when things start to cool down, we, we get another burst of grass. And these are these windows to where you can get the best finish and the, and the most, you know, um, best body condition on your, on your finished animals and have your best beef. Now we're going to have to get our friend Kathy to make us a T-shirt that says, you know, there are four seasons. There's beef season, there's crawfish season, <laughs> there's hurricane right. season, whatever. Uh, right. So we'll have to get uh, Kathy on that. But uh, we only have a few more minutes, but I want to talk mm-hmm. a little bit about, you know, the products that you have and, you know, what you're doing. I had the opportunity to, um, for my listeners out there, Evan, Gave me a couple of things on my visit. One was a mulberry tree. Uh, two thumbs up to Glow Airlines because they allowed me to carry the mulberry tree, go through TSA, scan it on the scanner, and uh, it even had its own seat on the plane. But you also gave me some sausages, and there was mm-hmm. a beer sausage and some smoked sausage. And I, I just think it's fun for people to to know that there's more than just what you get at your grocery store too. So tell us a little bit about the products that y'all are selling and where people can buy it. Yeah. Um, the beer bratwurst that you got was a, a collaborative thing we did with our local brewery, Great Raft Brewing in Shreveport. Um, they actually give us their uh, spent grains and we feed it to our various livestock at different times and different circumstances. But um we we also collaborated with them to make this bratwurst from our pork, and uh, we use their southern draw lager um, in it, and it's it's just a wonderful. I mean, it's my favorite product that we produce. We also produce a um, smoked hickory smoked you know country sausage, which would just be your basic southern style uh, hickory smoked sausage, 
we're we're. I also gave you an Andouille sample that I don't think you've had a chance. I to haven't try had yet. a chance but to I'm, try I'm it yet. Very interested I'm saving in it for my gumbo. <laughs> yeah, because I don't have a lot of experience with Andouille. I really like it, but I don't know how it compares to the real deal that you know that um, you have way more experience with. Um, yeah. Oh, and where do we sell? Uh, our, we sell to a, a couple, about three or four different, well, actually, it's, yeah, five different uh, grocery outlets that are um, like grocery stores slash health food stores. Um, we have Vitamins Plus in Shreveport, Sunshine Health Food in Shreveport and Bossier, uh Gibson's Natural Grocery in Ruston, and then For His Temple Family Foods in Monroe. Um, we also do a home delivery service on Tuesdays through Cultivate318.com, which is our our uh, online store for our products. So you go to cultivate318.com, you place your order. We call you with a final price because we have to weigh the, uh, the, the order and get a price on it. And then we deliver to your house on Tuesday afternoons, which uh, you, people just leave coolers out and we, we drop it in there. Um, and, it's, it's, we're, and, of course, we sell at the local Shreveport Farmer's Market during the season. Now, I know that, uh, you know, for our listeners out there, we have listeners all over the state and, uh, the show is also available online. So there's, you know, people that have access to it. And if we have, you know, chefs out there or maybe there's a family that is going to have just a total throwdown barbecue and they need 40 pounds of sausage and, you know, mm-hmm. ribs and stuff like that, you know, can they reach out to you and and get it frozen so that they can, you know, bring it home or... Uh, cook it up? Like, will you sell that much or is it just, you know, one little pack here and there? Uh, we do have some bulk prices and we even have on our website a uh, product called the uh, Grill Master. And it's like, I think it's a couple hundred dollars worth of, of our most ideal grilling meats um, or pork. It's not, it doesn't have our beef in it yet. Our beef is one of those things where we're, we're always up and down on inventory um, and our chicken as well. But the pork is something we're, we're maintaining a consistent inventory of, and that's why we have the Grill Master. It's a bulk deal. I think you're saving like somewhere around 10 to 15% buying it in a, in a big pack like that. And we also sell 40-pound boxes of sausage, and it's, that's literally our uh, case size is 40 pounds. Well, so, and um, I feel like if people need to take a road trip, it's a great road trip. Eat, you know, mm-hmm. boudin at every gas station on the way up there and then uh, go see my yeah, happy Yeah, and that's why we and... don't sell boudin because we just, you know, we, we don't want to compete with that travel strategy. <laughs> well, so, Evan, if you can just uh, tell our listeners real quick, you know, how they can find out more about you and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, where they can follow you and all that good stuff. Cool. Uh, one other thing I would add, if you're coming up here for a road trip, you know, my mother runs a Airbnb bed and breakfast uh, business out of our main farmhouse. And so you can stay there and in the morning she'll make you a farm to table, like literally, you know, it's from right out the door, you're eating ham or bacon or whatever the, the that day's dish is from, from the farm. You know, it's a truly authentic farm to table breakfast part of the deal and you can check her out on uh, airbnb you can also uh probably our our most active social media is uh facebook and instagram uh you go to mahaffeyfarms.com and there's links to our uh facebook and instagram um cultivate318.com is our farm store or online store and all this stuff links up to each other but uh yeah you could just 
Google search Mahaffey Farms even and, and click on the various links there and find find out more and more. Well, I think you're going to have some new fans. You might, uh, your mama might need to start uh, expanding <laughs> the B&B because one thing I know that uh, people in Louisiana like is a, a good foodie road trip. So uh, get yes. ready. And uh, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Y'all been listening to Evan McCommon of Mahaffey Farms. This is your host of New Orleans by Mouth, Chef Amy Sins on WRBH 88.3 FM. Until next time. Ciao.